This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. Welcome to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. Hi, I'm Jamie Busson. I'm a former commercial litigator who used to weigh 242 pounds. When I was 38 years old, I lost over 50 pounds through a regimen of exercise and better nutrition. It took me a year to reach my goal, but I thought if a type A personality like me could do it, really anybody can. I'm still asking questions and learning about what it means to live a healthy lifestyle. Please join me on this continuing journey. Today, we'll discuss how your pharmacist can help you if you have type 2 diabetes with pharmacist Mandeep Sandhor. We'll learn how to jazz up your fitness routine with fitness expert Dr. Stacey Irvine. We'll find out about the treatment of psoriasis with Dr. Renita Alualia. And lastly, we'll learn about the GTA housing market with real estate expert and developer Mitchell Abrahams. But before we get to that, here's your tonic quick shot of healthy headlines. Scientists at the Salk Institute have revealed a factor implicated in the aging process, a class of lipids called SGDGS that decline in the brain with age and may have anti-inflammatory effects. The research helps unravel the molecular basis of brain aging, reveals new mechanisms underlying age-related neurological diseases, and offers future opportunities for therapeutic intervention. Vitamin D is an important nutrient that helps maintain good health and keep our bones and muscles strong and healthy. Now, new research from the University of South Australia gives strong evidence that vitamin D deficiency is associated with premature death, prompting calls for people to follow healthy vitamin D level guidelines. Published in the Annals of Internal Medicine, the study found that the more severe the vitamin D deficiency, the greater risk of mortality. The take-home message here is simple. According to the scientist in charge of the research, the key is prevention. It's very important to continue public health efforts to ensure the vulnerable and elderly maintain sufficient vitamin D levels throughout the year. Intermittent fasting has been shown to be an effective way to lose weight, but critics have worried that the practice may have a negative impact on women's reproductive hormones. A study from the University of Illinois, Chicago, followed a group of pre- and postmenopausal obese women for a period of eight weeks on the warrior diet method of intermittent fasting. The diet prescribes a time-restricted feeding window of four hours per day, during which dieters could eat without counting calories. While most hormone levels remained unchanged for those on the warrior diet, the levels of one key hormone, DHEA, a key component of estrogen, did reduce initially. The scientist in charge of the study noted that the drop in DHEA levels in postmenopausal women could be concerning because menopause already causes a dramatic drop in estrogen and DHEA is a primary component of estrogen. However, a survey of the participants reported no negative side effects associated with low estrogen postmenopause such as sexual dysfunction or skin changes. That was your tonic quick shot. I'll be joined by Mandeep Sandhur in a moment. But first, a little bit of business. Hi, this is Safina, and I'm a Walmart pharmacist. Whether you're looking for a medication review, diabetes screening, or have questions about your health, your local Walmart pharmacist is here to help. Find out more at walmart.ca slash pharmacy services. Mandeep Sandhur is a pharmacist and certified diabetes educator who works at Walmart. 
What is a certified diabetes educator and what's involved in becoming one? A certified diabetes educator or CDE is a healthcare professional such as a nurse, dietitian, pharmacist or doctor that specializes in treating people with diabetes. This individual has a sound knowledge base in diabetes care management and education processes as well as good communication skills. The steps and requirements involved in becoming a CDE are first you must be a registered and fully licensed healthcare professional with a regulatory body in Canada. Second, your professional scope of practice permits you to provide diabetes education. Third, you must have a minimum of 800 hours of Canadian practice in diabetes within any duration of a combination of time within the three-year period immediately preceding the application. And lastly, you must pass the Canadian Diabetes Educator Certification Board exam, which includes solid knowledge of the Diabetes Canada Clinical Practical Guidelines for Diabetes. Great. As a CDE, what sort of information can you give to customers? As a CDE, the intention is to help people living with diabetes, prediabetes, or gestational diabetes develop individualized goals to better optimize their care and health outcomes. What's your experience in dealing with customers who've been diagnosed with type 2 diabetes? My experience in dealing with customers who have been diagnosed with type 2 diabetes is that it can be very overwhelming to accept and there is a lot of information to take in. Patients go through many emotions such as denial, anger, depression, and frustration to name a few. And our role as community pharmacists is to assure patients that we are here to provide diabetes education, management, and ongoing support for them. What is a potential role for pharmacists in diabetes management and care specifically? The potential role for pharmacists in diabetes management and care is to educate our patients and learn how to support them in their own self-care journey. Walmart pharmacists can help to improve health outcomes for patients living with diabetes by training on blood glucose meters, offering nutritional support and coaching, assisting new start insulin patients by addressing common concerns, reviewing injection technique and outlining important safety considerations pertaining to insulin use, such as hypoglycemia or low blood sugar, and driving alcohol consumption, and then also collaborating with their family doctor or endocrinologist regarding patient-specific optimization of oral and injectable diabetes medication. What advice do you have for your customers to proactively deal with their health if they've been diagnosed with type 2 diabetes? I would advise patients newly diagnosed with type 2 diabetes to gain an understanding of the cause, symptoms, treatment, and complications of diabetes. Type 2 diabetes is a disease in which your body cannot make enough insulin, which is a hormone that helps control the amount of glucose or sugar in your blood or does not properly use the insulin it makes. Patients are educated to manage type 2 diabetes by eating healthy meals and snacks, enjoying regular physical activity, monitoring your blood sugar with a home blood glucose meter, aiming for a healthy body weight, taking diabetes medications including insulin if prescribed by your doctor, and managing stress effectively. What is uh, blood glucose screening for those who don't know? So blood glucose screening measures your blood sugar at the time you're tested. It can involve a finger prick that detects your current sugar level, either fasting or two hours after a meal, or it can detect your hemoglobin A1C, which indicates your average blood sugar levels over the past three months. And do you offer it at Walmart Pharmacy that you work at? Do you do that? Throughout the year, Walmart Pharmacies will provide Canadians with education about diabetes and associated health risks 
through educational events such as Walmart Wellness Days that provide Canadians with access to blood glucose screening for type 2 diabetes. And currently, about 10 select pharmacies in Alberta do conduct the A1C screening test. Mm -hmm. And in the future, this service will be rolled out in other Walmart pharmacies across the country. What are the dangers if type 2 diabetes goes undetected? So diabetes is known to reduce lifespan and people living with the disease are more likely to have complications such as nerve damage, amputations, kidney failure, heart attacks, strokes, high blood pressure, mental health issues, and experience vision loss. And is there like a template or an idea of who would be a good candidate for blood glucose screening? Is it anybody or would you exhibit certain uh, symptoms before you should think about doing it? So anyone over the age of 40 should be tested for diabetes every three years. If you have one or more risk factors, you should be tested earlier and more frequently. For example, you have a greater risk of developing type 2 diabetes if you have a parent, brother, or sister with diabetes, such as being African, Arab, Asian, Hispanic, Indigenous, or South Asian descent can increase your risk of developing type 2 diabetes. What sort of conveniences are you able to provide to your customers who do have type 2 diabetes? We can provide our customers living with type 2 diabetes with medication reviews, which is a patient care service that seeks to enhance a patient's understanding of their medication regimen, identify and resolve drug-related problems, and improve health outcomes. Also, we can offer auto-refills on prescriptions where your prescription refill will be initiated a week before it is due, and this has also been launched in some stores as a text reminder. Walmart recently launched text reminders for prescription pickup as well so that you know when your prescription is ready. We also offer compliance packaging, which is a safe and efficient way to manage medications by day and time. And in some provinces, pharmacists can assess and prescribe for minor ailments, which are conditions that can be reliably self-diagnosed by patients and managed with minimal treatment, such as a urinary tract infection or an insect bite or eczema. For those who are taking medications for type 2 diabetes, are there typically any drug interactions that they might want to be aware of? There can be many drug interactions with medications that are used for type 2 diabetes, including antibiotics, blood pressure medications, and corticosteroids, to name a few. These interactions are not limited to prescription medications, but also include over-the-counter medications such as cough and cold products and herbal or natural products. And as a pharmacist, what's your role in dealing with those potential interactions? So as a Walmart pharmacist and or a CDE, we can help by educating our patients living with diabetes to always confirm with their patient before starting to take any over-the-counter herbal or natural products to ensure there's no potential drug interaction. We do our due diligence to suggest alternatives to physicians when we are prompted with potential drug interactions. I understand that you were instrumental in diagnosing your husband's diabetes. Yeah, so my husband, at the age of 36, got diagnosed with type 2 diabetes out of the blue. Very fit, very healthy, no family history, Mm. actually. And uh, the doctors feel that it was stress-induced. And based on his symptoms of having to go to the washroom a lot, being very tired, I decided to check his sugar. And when I checked on my home blood sugar machine, it was at 22. Mm. And I happened to have a machine because I myself was gestational diabetic. 
So I had to monitor my sugars. I sent him directly to urgent care. And from then, he's managed it with medications and mainly through diet and exercise. What is 22 for somebody who doesn't know? I presume oh, that's high. So okay, Yeah, yeah. So a fasting blood glucose prior to eating should be between 4 and 7. Okay. And two hours after a meal, you want it to be between about 7 and 10. So 22 is way offside. 22 is way offside. Thank you for sharing that story with us, and thank you for coming on the show today. For more great health and wellness articles and interviews, visit thetonic.ca. We have to take a short break, but we'll be right back on The Tonic. Hi, this is Safina, and I'm a Walmart pharmacist. Whether you're looking for a medication review, diabetes screening, or have questions about your health, your local Walmart pharmacist is here to help. Find out more at walmart.ca slash pharmacy services. Tired of lineups at your pharmacist? Why not try PharmaZ at the Zoomer store? Powered by the Health Depot, an Ontario-accredited pharmacy, PharmaZ offers a concierge approach to filling, refilling, and managing your prescriptions with free delivery anywhere in Ontario. To get started, visit zoomerstore.com and click on PharmaZ. And then click on the Circle of Care Pharmacy Program for your free initial consultation with a clinical pharmacist. Don't wait. Go today. Welcome back to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. Dr. Stacey Irvine, D.C. is the co-founder of Totem Life Science. The philosophy and identity of Totem have been greatly influenced by Stacey's love of athletics and her passionate belief that everyone will benefit from a healthy, active lifestyle in their own unique way. Through her work as a chiropractor and strength and conditioning specialist, Dr. Irvine's clientele ranges from beginners just starting out on an exercise program to elite and professional athletes looking for advanced rehabilitation and training program strategies. She is also a frequent guest on this show. Welcome back, my friend. How are you? I'm great. Happy to be here. So I am one of those like weird dudes who do the exact same <laughs> exercise on the exact same day, week in, week out. Interesting. But I think I'm an outlier. And Yeah, I know a few of you. I wouldn't say weird. The bottom line is you're doing it. So right. that makes me happy. Right. Right. And it is kind of, you got to figure out what works and, and what your personality is. And I feel like you've got it sorted. However, I would love to see you mix it up a little bit. And that's this show, this particular episode is all about that because I realize there's a lot of people out there who are hopping on the bike or are lifting the weights and getting a little bit bored of it. And maybe that's impacting their motivation, huh? It usually does. That That is the norm. We want to mix things up as much as we possibly can. One of the main reasons for that is that we are not unidimensional beings, right? right? We are designed to move in millions of different ways, really. And, you know, different paces. Some days we might want to, you know, do things a little more dynamically. Some things we want, we might want to do things where we're slowing it down and stretching. Some days we might just want to be outside, like running through a forest. We were designed to do that. The problems that start happening when we do the same thing over and over again and keep moving in the same direction is we see a lot of overuse injuries 
And then the other thing that we can see is that certain parts of our body get overdeveloped, a little tighter, so we can see some postural changes and things like that. In your case, you're extremely knowledgeable. So I would anticipate that you've got a pretty well-rounded situation happening that you're simply repeating. But in lots of people's cases, repeating those same moves over and over again can lead to trouble. Yeah. And I was also thinking this, your body learns how to adapt, right? So for example, and I'm just using it as an example, if you were going to do a marathon row, you're going to impact your body in a certain way. But if you kept doing that same row over and over again, eventually your body would figure out a way to maximize its effort in order to do. and, And so there's diminishing returns from the same routine. And there's probably muscle groups that, you know, if you don't know what you're doing, and even if you do, you're missing because you're not changing it up every now and then. Is is that fair? That is 100% correct. And that's kind of one of the things that you really got there is that human beings become efficient at what we do regularly, Right. right? And when our goal for exercise in many cases is to get a cardiovascular response, get a strength response, get a neuromuscular response, and burn calories, believe it or not, The more times you do the same thing, as your body gets more efficient, you're going to burn less calories. For sure. Right? And so if your goal is to kind of get the most out of every workout, mixing it up, jazzing things up a bit, changing the moves is really an important thing to do. This was brought home to me because on one of my days, I do this circuit where it's like 500 meter row and then a series of like calisthenic like stuff like lunges and squats and push-ups and sit-ups. I decided one day to do fewer rotations, but lengthen each one. So instead of rowing 500 to row 1,000 and then double up on the number of pushups, okay, I almost couldn't finish, right? But (laughs) it was overall, it was the same amount, but just changing the number messed me up. And I realized, okay, my body has clearly adapted to doing this one particular workout so efficiently that really I have to change that up because there's no return anymore. Like just just by changing the numbers that brought that home, right? Yeah. It made the response completely different. Completely. And that's, what's so exciting about it. And that's, what's so great about changing it up. And you'll find that even people who love to do classes, you know, all of a sudden you'll have a substitute instructor and you'll say, Oh my God, that was so hard. Even though that new instructor knew what the program was, but they changed the order. They might've changed the number of repetitions and it really has, a much greater impact on your body and ultimately on your fitness. And in my opinion, one of the most important things about that too is your brain. So a lot of the extra movement that we do is to help us be in good shape for our activities of daily life. You know, we've got winter coming up. We're going to be out on slippery surfaces. We don't always know what the world is going to throw at us. But when we do things that are different, we're more prepared for something out of the ordinary happening to us. And and I think ultimately that's why we work out is that we want to be able to be healthy, exist in the world in a really comfortable, healthy way. So in my opinion, the more you can mix things up, the better it is for you. Agreed. So how do we change these things that we want to change but make sure that the difficulty isn't increased or decreased too significantly. Do you know what I mean? I do know what you mean. So we still want to get the benefits that we get from that time that we're dedicating. So I think that's what you start with is how long does my workout normally take me? Right. So if your workout takes you an hour, 
you don't want to change it and go, okay, this one only takes me 30 minutes. Right. You want to put the time in, but you want to fill that time with different movements. How do you rate your level of exertion? Well, we can look at things like how heavy am I breathing? You could check your heart rate. You make sure that you're sweating. For those of you that work out regularly, you're kind of going to know. The other way that I love to change things up is to maybe change the way you do the repetition. So kind of how you did it, where instead of maybe doing 20 reps, you're going to time yourself for 30 seconds. Right. And you're going to go through your workout like that. So with every exercise, you're not going to count. You're just going to set a timer for 30 seconds and whatever you get to, you get to. That's a very fun way that you know you're kind of hitting the same areas. So I love that. I love using techniques like maybe pyramids, you know, we lift, we do like three, four, five, and then back down four, three. Yep. Or there's a new technique called the three, seven technique, which I love. What's that? So three, seven, the research has shown that it is one of the most effective ways to make strength gains that is out there right now. You do three repetitions. First of all, you take a weight that's about 70% of your max. You do three repetitions. You wait 15 seconds. You do four, wait 15 seconds, five seven, and then you're done. By the end of that seventh rep, it is incredibly hard. And that's what is so great about this technique. The 15 second rest in between allows your muscles to kind of store up some more energy and you keep going, but it's really effective and really fun. I've been using that one and I've had great results with it. So do you time the actual work or just the breaks in between? Just the breaks. Yep. And 15 seconds is weird because you catch your breath, but your muscles... It's not a full rest. It's not a full rest. It's not a full rest at all, which is, that's how the technique works. How many cycles of an, so if you were doing curls or presses, do you just do one set? I do it once. Yeah. And that's enough. And that's enough because that muscle then is done. Like at the end of seven, you're done. And that's what I kind of like about it too, is that I'm, I'm not coming back to other things. Like I'm just, okay, biceps are done. Chest press is done. Squats are done. I love it. Okay. So I know what you mean by 70%, but for those who don't know, how would you gauge what 70% is? So 70% is something that you could probably lift by about, you know, the 10th rep you're, you're feeling like, okay, I'm done. You know, so it's, it's, uh, it's kind of, it's not obviously a max weight. It's not half of your max is kind of like right in between there. And look, it doesn't, that part doesn't matter. You don't have to get bogged down in that as much. Right. Just try it. And if at the end of that seventh rep, yeah. you're not tired, you didn't do it heavy enough. Next time, pick heavier. Is this regimen, so like, I, I'm imagining the exercises I would do on that sort of time yeah. frame. Is this a 45-minute workout or an hour? Like, how long can you do the seven, three, four? You can do it for as long as you want. It depends on how many muscle okay. groups you but what, choose. What do you do? What are you doing? I would do about a 45. Yeah, 40, I was going to say, yeah. it sounds like it's a 45-minute workout. It's tough. And it's 45 minutes of hard lifting. I've even done it now where I alternate because I don't want to stand around for 15 seconds. I alternate lower and upper. So I might okay. do biceps, then I do squats. Okay, so this is what I do. I have this circuit that I do mm-hmm. when I have 45 minutes. It's yep. 10 exercises. Sizes, I do three sets and it's upper body, lower body, upper love body. It. And then I finish off with some core work to round it out, to get it to around yeah. an hour. Right. Perfect. And I, I love that because otherwise if you do too top heavy, you're just going to fatigue yourself and you, you, that's where injuries happen to me. I agree. And it's not as efficient, right? Because you do want to lift then rest. That's how we get the most out of our muscles. So it's perfect. What other tips do you have to jazz up the workout? Is it maybe different types of modalities or something that you could do? I love that idea. I think adding maybe some games in, 
What do you mean by game? Oh, I you mean like sports? Sports, like, you know, getting together with your friends yep. is a really important way to get you excited about working out again. I was telling you before the show that I just started playing pickleball. Yep. I am absolutely loving it, but I think I'm mostly loving being with my friends outside and laughing together and really enjoying ourselves that way. However, it's provided me with another challenge that when I'm back in the weight room, I'm thinking, okay, I want my shoulder to work this way. I need a little bit more strength here. So that's really helped add to my motivation. I I think that that's a great way to do it. Another awesome thing is meet with a trainer. Yep. Get your program looked at, you know, tell them what your goals are, get some things tweaked a little bit. And sometimes even I've talked to people where they say, when I know I have that appointment, like it could be once a month or something like that, I work harder so that I'm in good kind of condition for that appointment. And I can tell that person like, yes, I did my homework and I'm, you know, working hard on these things. But sometimes a new set of eyes, it doesn't have to be a trainer, it could be a friend that knows lots about working out where you say, you know what, let's go to the gym together and I want to show you what I'm doing and see what you think. I think the more things that we can do, the more people we can talk with, you know, about all these things, the more interaction we have with other people, that really helps with our motivation. I agree. So we put it in a home gym, which means really I can exercise whenever I want, right? It's it's yes. just there. There's no barriers to me doing it. And yet in some days I find it's harder to motivate myself than back in the day when I had to be at a particular gym by yeah. eight o'clock, right? right? Because it's more of an endeavor, right? You have to get your stuff ready. You have to make mm-hmm. sure that, you know, the car's gazed up, whatever it is you're going to do to get there. And I kind of also miss, like I work out alone and having other people, like maybe be, I'm a competitive person, you know, yes. maybe, maybe maybe seeing somebody else lift something and thinking, oh, you know, I can do that, right? And And having that there and the support that you get in some of those classes might motivate people as well. It usually does. Human beings, we like to connect. And that is a big part of our motivation is that connection. So whether you're watching someone lift something or you think someone's watching you lift something, it always helps. And I always encourage people to get out and do it. I love the home gym for convenience. On the days when you don't want to go out or you can't, you don't have time. It's perfect. But when you can get out, I think go try a new class, go to a different gym with new types of equipment. All these things are going to encourage you to do things a little bit differently. And very importantly, learn a little bit, learn a little bit about your body, about a different way to do something. That's what keeps us all going. And this science changes almost daily. So it's hard to keep up, but you know, the the trends are there and the common sense keeps us doing what we should be doing. But like, for example, this three, seven thing we just talked about, that's brand new research. I don't know if I would have heard about it had I not been, you know, at the gym or like watching people do it. Weightlifters have been using these types of techniques forever. But if you're not out in the world having those conversations, you might not hear about it. And it's something fun and new to try. Agreed. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. My pleasure. For more information about Stacey, visit totem.ca. For great health and wellness articles and interviews, visit thetonic.ca. We have to take a short break, but when we come back, we'll discuss the treatment of psoriasis on The Tonic. Medicinal mushrooms offer a multitude of health benefits, including immune support, improved energy, and stress reduction. Medicinal mushroom extracts from New Roots Herbal, hot water extracted, providing you validated potency so you get their full health benefits. Discover Reishi, Lion's Mane, or Resilience, a seven-mushroom blend. 
find the complete selection of medicinal mushroom extracts from New Roots Herbal exclusively at quality health food stores. To learn more, visit newrootsherbal.com. To ensure the products are right for you, always read and follow the label. Welcome back to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. Dr. Renita Alawalia is the lead dermatologist at the Canadian Dermatology Centre. She's a Canadian and American board certified dermatologist with cosmetic and medical interests. The doctor completed her undergraduate studies in her hometown of Winnipeg, earning both a BA and a BSc from the University of Manitoba in four years. She then studied medicine at the University of Toronto when she went on to complete residency training in dermatology in 2013, serving as chief resident during her final year. She has presented at national and international meetings and has been the recipient of numerous awards. Welcome to the show, doctor. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Thanks for having me, Jamie. Yeah, so we're going to talk about a topic that, like, seriously, over three years, we, more than three years, I guess we're almost up to five years, we have not covered before, and amazingly, that is psoriasis. So what is psoriasis? So psoriasis is a disorder of inflammation, and because of this inflammation, the skin cells turn over quicker than they do in someone who doesn't have psoriasis. And basically, it's characterized by red, daily plaques that can affect any areas of the body. Common sites are the knees, the elbows, the back of the head. And some people have milder disease where they have a low body surface area. And some people are covered in these plaques. Psoriasis is very common. About 1 million Canadians are affected by it. And, you know, that works out to about 2.5% of the population. So what are some of the stigmas and challenges that somebody who has psoriasis may have? So I see a lot of patients with psoriasis in my practice, and I notice that when they come in, they feel very self-conscious about their disease. People often worry, is this contagious, which it's not. It's a disorder of inflammation, not an infection. People worry that other people perceive their skin as not clean or dirty, And people wonder if they're doing something that's creating this condition for themselves. So people have a lot of impairment in quality of life and psychosocial aspects of their life because of the disease. And I have some patients who've suffered from psoriasis for years, and they've learned to deal with it. And when I'm able to get their skin clear, they don't even realize how it was holding them back before. But to be able to see people flourish because their, their psoriasis has been treated is a wonderful, a wonderful, wonderful thing. Is all psoriasis treatable? Yes. Psoriasis is not curable, but it is certainly treatable. And now we have some amazing molecules that can make a huge difference. We understand a lot now about the pathogenesis of psoriasis. And we know, you know, what particular aspects of the immune system are involved. So there are now medications available that can specifically target some of those markers of inflammation that are high. And the results are amazing. You know, patients get clear or almost clear in as early as, you know, six to eight weeks. And those results can be maintained long term. And that's something that newer in this disease and the side effect profiles are are fantastic. So when I see a patient come into my office who even has very severe disease, I'm so happy that I am able to offer them hope, not of a cure, but hope for excellent treatment options that can control their disease in as little as 
you know, four injections a year. Wow. So how does somebody get psoriasis? Is it inherited? Is it a result of having another condition? That, that, and this is sort of a, a collateral issue that goes with it? That's a great question. Psoriasis can affect anybody. Usually, the way I think about inflammatory disease, I think about it as a, a two-hit hypothesis. So first of all, you have to have an in- individual who's genetically predisposed. So that's yeah. your combination of genes. If both your parents have psoriasis, your odds of having it are, are pretty high. So someone who's genetically predisposed has to have some sort of trigger, some sort of internal or external trigger that will cause the disease to to come out. And that can be stress, physical, emotional, dietary. Even after infection, certain types of psoriasis flare. Like there's a type of psoriasis called guttate psoriasis that after a strep infection, uh, young people tend to get flare-ups. And it can affect anybody, but the most common times of onset are age 20 to 30 and age 50 to 60. And it can impact people of all different backgrounds and races. So when you talk about those two age cohorts, 20 to 30 Mm -hmm. and 50 to 60, like in my mind, just like the little bit that I've picked up on being on this show, that suggests to me that it might be tied to hormones. Like, Is there a hormonal element, like a change in hormones that it would impact it? You know, that's a really good thought. It's not one of the major factors in psoriasis, although I do notice that certain patients uh, feel that hormonal triggers can influence their psoriasis, but it's not one of the leading uh, symptoms. So I have eczema. It was actually much worse when I was growing up, and and obviously Mm -hmm. it's not the same as psoriasis, but back in the day they would treat it with like a topical steroid. And I recall, I knew some people with psoriasis who were having the topical steroid for that. You mentioned a new treatment. So what's available now? I presume we're, we're beyond sort of the topical steroids at this point. Well, you know, topical steroids are still important in the treatment of milder disease. And even for, you know, spot treatment for people who have more severe disease. So I'll kind of walk you through an algorithm of of the treatment options that are available now. So for mild disease or localized disease, there are topical treatments. So topical steroids are the the oldest, it's true. They mix now a lot of the topical steroids with vitamin D analogs, and they're available in different formats like foams and gels. And what's really nice is the vitamin D helps with the psoriasis, but it also has some protective effects. So you don't see, you know, the thinning of the skin or some of the side effects that people uh, are conscious about with steroids. There's also now preparations that also include topical retinols mixed with the steroid, and those are really great for helping with skin cell turnover, for thicker plaques. So those are some of the topical things we use. In the past, people used to use a lot of tar and different molecules as well, but we've moved away from that a little bit. There's also light therapy. So that's when people um, stand in a light box of a specific wavelength, so it's not damaging to the skin, to help treat those plaques of psoriasis. Is that like Uh, uh, the red light? It's not red light. It's it's actually narrow band UVB is the okay. most common used. It's a wavelength of 311. And people go a couple times a week for about three or four months. And for some people who have thinner, diffuse uh, plaques, it can be very helpful. And then there are systemic medications. And so there were like the older medications that work by suppressing the immune system, like methotrexate or cyclosporin. And sometimes we still have to use those medications. But now there's a lot of new molecules out there. And those are the 
biologics that that I was talking a little bit about earlier. Yeah. And they're really neat because they're targeted therapies. So we know that certain uh, inflammatory markers are uh, elevated in psoriasis. And so if we can specifically target those aspects of the immune system, then the psoriasis gets under good control without having a lot of other um, immunosuppressive side effects. Interesting. So it's amazing. I'm so excited now to be able to give this information to my psoriasis patients because, you know, now there's hope for them. And even patients who haven't seen a dermatologist in, you know, 20 years because they thought there was really nothing out there for them, to be able to share with them that there are really good treatments out there and that their skin can get clear or almost clear and stay that way without a lot of side effects or concerns, it's wonderful. The molecules that you speak of, is that the mRNA type derivation or CRISPR, or is this something else? Uh, It's something else. So they are basically um, targeted therapies, like they are uh, targeted immunoglobulin type therapies to the markers that are elevated in psoriasis. So some of the really popular ones right now are the anti-IL-23 family. And so those are some of the ones that have really great dosing. And as little as four injections a year, people can have clear, almost clear skin. So if somebody who's listening to the show thinks that they may have psoriasis, what should they do? The first thing is to see your primary care provider who can help in confirming the diagnosis and then send you off to a dermatologist. We're lucky in um, the GTA. We have a lot of dermatologists who are interested in seeing psoriasis. At our clinic, the Canadian Dermatology Centre, we have a dedicated psoriasis clinic with a dedicated nurse who supports these patients on their journey. And we're happy to see them and give them these great results and provide education. As a dermatologist, if there was one takeaway point that you would want a listener to know, what would that be? I think that if you have psoriasis or you know someone who has psoriasis and uh, you are suffering because of it, you should see your doctor and um, see a dermatologist and find solutions to, to this problem because psoriasis impacts your mental health, your quality of life, ability to work, ability to maintain relationships. And if we are able to clear it, we see people really blossom. So I want people to know that there, there is hope for psoriasis. Okay. I have a sort of an adjunct question because we, we talk a lot about natural health on the show. And I'm wondering, are there any diet or lifestyle choices that people can make that might help with the psoriasis? Yes, this is something that patients ask all the time. And stress is one of the big factors that flares psoriasis. And what I tell my patients is that can be physical stress. It can be emotional stress. It can be dietary stress. It can be hormonal stress, like you mentioned before. So although there are no particular foods or anything that when we look at the literature really flare psoriasis, for a lot of people, they tell me when they eat sugary foods like high glycemic index foods, their disease flares. Or I have some patients who say when they eat dairy, their disease flares. And I have some patients who say gluten flares. So although I don't advise a restrictive diet, I I do tell patients to pay attention to their body and their own triggers and, um, and adjust accordingly. Great. If people were interested in finding out more information about psoriasis, where would you send them? There are some great uh, resources out there. There's the Canadian Psoriasis Network. 
the Canadian Association of Psoriasis Patients, or the Canadian Dermatology Association. And they have great websites and great resources available for patients. There's great photos there, too. There's information on how to do self-assessments. So um, I think those are, are three great resources for people. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss housing in the GTA on The Tonic. The Big Carrot is a worker-owned natural food market that's been committed to local, organic, non-GMO, and sustainable food systems since 1983. They're a one-stop shop offering produce, grocery, bulk, body care, and holistic dispensary. The juice and smoothie bars and kitchens serve up hundreds of healthy dishes and drinks daily. Building community is at the core of their vision, which they deliver through education, outreach, and giving. They want everyone to share in the goodness they offer. Visit their website for more information at thebigcarrot.ca. I'd like to give a shout out to our new sponsor, Omega Alpha. This company is 100% Canadian owned. Their team consists of allopathic and naturopathic doctors, nutritionists, researchers, and other scientific professionals, all led by their CEO, Dr. Gordon Chang. Formulations are created on their 40,000 square foot facility located in Toronto. Omega Alpha uses only the highest quality ingredients to manufacture the most efficacious yet price-friendly nutraceuticals. For more information about Omega Alpha, visit OmegaAlphaInc.com. Welcome back to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. Mitchell Abrahams is the principal of the Benvenuto Group. He's a real estate professional with over 25 years of commercial and multifamily residential real estate experience. He's converted apartments into condominiums and developed condominium and apartment projects as well. We used to have him on the show a lot before. It's been a while. Welcome back, sir. How are you? I'm well. How are you? Doing well. I thought it was apropos to bring you in because for the first time I can recall, the province is actually allegedly trying to do something to help with our housing issues. So I thought it would be fun to bring you in and get your perspective. And of course, you can whip me into a frenzy if you wish. Okay. I should start by saying that I think the province has actually been trying for a number of years to come forward with some interesting options to increase supply and housing. This is new and committed, but I think every time we've seen stuff in the past, one set of solutions brings a new set of challenges. It's the law of unintended consequences. I agree. And maybe we'll delve into that. So for those who don't know, the province announced sort of quasi-officially that they want 1.5 million more homes in the province over the next 10 years. And of that, they want 285,000 in the city of Toronto. Do you think that's necessary? I do think it's necessary. I think we all continue to underestimate how much Toronto is growing. And when I take a look on a more global uh, level, Ontario, Canada, Toronto, we continue to look like a safe haven for people, I'm sure, from all over the world. Politically, economically, socially, it's just that we're all lucky to be where we are. And I think to anticipate people continuing to flow into Canada and into Ontario, and of course, if you come into Ontario, the lion's share comes to Toronto, I think it makes sense. We need to have a plan. We need to have a plan for housing, and we need to have a plan for transit to support that housing. Yeah, I'm with you. And I actually think that the transit and infrastructure planning is more relevant than some of the other stuff that they're focusing in on, but we can come to that later. 
So let's talk about the missing middle part of their agenda. So they've announced the new provincial law, which ostensibly is going to override municipal authority, which will allow for up to three residential units on a lot. So let's just look at that in isolation. What do you think of that? Like, is that something that's going to help, do you think? I think in concept, it's a great idea. I just don't know, and we'll have to see, if the follow-through in terms of the amount of new supply that that brings about is significant. We're rare as a city in having the number of single-family homes in an urban setting compared to a lot of of cities, but how many people will actually take their single family home and turn it into a triplex? or a coach house, basement yeah, apartment is yeah. a good question. I think some neighborhoods it will. Like I, I could see it in little Portugal, little Italy, sort of the older neighborhoods where the houses are closer together. Do I think that in Forest Hill they're going to turn it into triplexes? I seriously doubt it. You know, is it going to happen in Rosedale? Probably not. So I, I think on a neighborhood by neighborhood basis, it, it will probably uh, move in that and, direction. And I'd go further. I, I think even by a street by street basis, right? Yeah. Like a The city is full of streets that have single-family homes that I drive by all the time and wonder. Ossington, Bathurst, busier uh, transit-focused streets where you've got a streetcar or a bus going up the street. I look at those homes. I think they're natural to be turned into apartments or to be split into three units. And then there are other, you know, like you say, tight neighborhoods where you could easily see some semi-detached homes or even smaller, narrow, detached homes being turned into duplexes and triplexes or, you know, separate condominiums. And I think that works. I'm just not sure that in aggregate, it puts a big dent into the number of housing units that we need compared to someone going, for instance, and building a 40-story condo building with uh, 450 apartments. Okay, so fair enough. Let's move on to another element of the big plan. So what they're also proposing is sort of an override so that there are no size restrictions on units. So like, so for example, you don't have to reach a certain critical mass to get a, a basement unit. No parking spot requirements, waiving of development charges, and parkland dedication. Do you think that's going to move builders? That's a good question. I don't think it moves builders. I think it creates opportunities for private owners to do it. I don't see it at, we have one of the leading housing industries anywhere in the world. We've got fantastic single family and multifamily builders. I don't think that the fragmented addition of a, a few units here or there is a huge part of what attracts the industry. But I do think it's an opportunity for people especially in times with rising interest rates and housing affordability getting out of whack. I think it's an option for many young and uh, older buyers or property owners to say, how do I keep what I have as a house and uh, take some money off the table? Or how do I subsidize rising interest rates or any number of things? I think it's a healthy thing for people who are outside the industry, but looking at real estate affordability to get engaged and to add supply and to help themselves get into the market. Great. Okay. So that makes sense. So it's not really, it's not an industry boon. It's more an individual boon. So for example, if somebody wanted to age in place, they have a two or three story house or a bigger house on a bigger property. They don't want to move, but they don't need all the space. They could create units in their building, keep it, and the building could be used as an inheritance and they get to stay in place and and live 
in the unit that they've had maybe for 20, 30 years. That makes sense to me. Uh, and again, I think of places like Italy. I, I don't think yeah. it's that rare that your parents own a larger house and then they have a couple kids and they say, we're getting older and we like having family around. Let's divide our house into three separate apartments yep. and let's live together and share the backyard and each have our own independent space. Yeah, I think those type of things make a lot of sense, particularly when you're helping the younger generation get into the real estate market. Yep. Okay, so let's move on to the next topic, which is infrastructure. So I was at a talk where Jennifer Keysmat was at, and you know she was formerly with the city as, as chief planner, and she dropped some information on the crowd, which I thought was interesting, and that is you know the underlying infrastructure in the city is not sufficient even to support the condos and big buildings that have been approved to the point where like sewage and and water supply are under complete stress on King Street with all the projects they have going on. Do you agree with her? Do you think that the infrastructure isn't even where we need it today, let alone what we need for the future? I think a few things. First of all, I think that there are major infrastructure projects underway in the city of Toronto that most of us aren't even aware of. Okay. There is a significant amount of stuff happening, you know, below our streets in terms of uh, redoing aqueducts and adding uh, sewer capacity. I think there is a lot of that stuff in planning that just doesn't make it to the average person, you know, a newspaper. That said, of course, in streets and many streets, even in high density neighborhoods, infrastructure hasn't been upgraded in, in a long, long time. And it really is concerning. Number one, the city has taken steps to try to make buildings more sustainable to sort of delay the impact on our infrastructure. So buildings are getting built with watertight foundations so that they aren't. In the past, when you had stormwater coming off the roof, they used to go down into a storm sewer. Right. Right now, buildings are being designed so that you don't need dewatering and that the buildings sort of are just watertight and buildings are being designed with less uh, energy use and uh, less water and more water retention designed into the building. So we're delaying the inevitable. But I continue and I think a lot of us continue to scratch our heads and say, you know, for every unit built in the city of Toronto, there are significant development charges. And you know, they're scheduled to almost double for most units to a, a really significant payment for each unit built. When you look at the number of units built a year in the city and the amount of revenue that generates, I continue to scratch my head and ask, where's that money going and how come it's not going into our water supply and storm sewers? Because I thought that's what those charges were supposed to support. No, I think we know the answer to that. It's money that the City Council of Toronto is drunk on, and they're using it to fund everything. I mean, that's that's a huge source because they can't raise property taxes for individuals because we'd all have to put our houses up for sale. I mean, that's the truth of it. Sorry, that's me spouting off. That's opinion. Well, you know, so the question, if you're right, the question is how long can you continue to defer those things? And I think... Uh, you know, Jennifer's is probably as knowledgeable as anyone on it. It's a, But it's not that it can't be funded. The dollars keep coming in to fund those things, but they keep getting spent on debt or hiring or, uh, you know, other services. And in some ways, that's wrong. And yep. it's, it's certainly wrong to blame new development on the fact that there's not enough infrastructure when those developments are being charged to be able to have that infrastructure in place. Agreed. 
All right. So another aspect of the plan is sort of a waiver of having to consider the conservation authorities entire mandate. So so it's been narrowed now. Obviously, you're not going to build on a floodplain, but it's the province has suggested that there's going to only going to be one conservation authority as opposed to many that exist right now regionally. And also kind of that the developers aren't going to have to deal with the, all the broad topics that the conservation authorities usually mandate. What do you think about that? I'm not a single family home builder, so you'd probably be better off talking to people who build, you know, in more sensitive areas. In an urban setting, it rarely comes up for us. Obviously, there are regulations in place that obviously that help the environment and the local environment. And some of those clearly need to be respected and others are probably, you know, uh, too strong in terms of their impact on areas that are ripe for development. But you really should talk to someone who's building near the moraine or in any of those areas to get some real insight, because I try to concentrate in Midtown Toronto, and I am therefore protected from a lot of those challenges. Fair enough. Let's move on to the last question, which is, and this harkens back to Toronto being an international city and a haven. The plan is to raise property taxes for foreign ownership from 20 to 25 percent. Do you think that's politics or do you think that's meaningful? I'll be honest with you. There are so many other factors impacting the marketplace right now that I'm not sure it's a real significant factor on uh, changing anything. Number one, I can tell you in projects that we do and from people I've spoken to, there aren't that many foreign buyers. There may be people who come from other countries and have come to Canada, but most people who buy in Toronto are residents or citizens of this country. So I don't think it's that significant. The challenge today is we've got an industry that's going at full capacity. We still got supply chain overhang from the pandemic. Yep. We've got commodity prices that are still high. We've got not enough skilled labor to build homes. Yep. And we've got interest rates going up. We've got development charges going up on development. Like there are a lot of issues impacting the cost of construction and affordability that really aren't going to uh, change that significantly. So I don't know if a move like that is enough. I think that there needs to be a real sort of series of moves at all levels of government to do what we can to have a long-term immigration plan so that we bring in skilled labor to support. We have so many employees in construction trades retiring every year and not being replaced with young people. And we have not enough new Canadians coming in with the experience of skilled trades. So we've got a lot to do in so many places that I'm not sure that a higher tax on foreign investors moves the needle. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your insights. Thanks to all my wonderful guests, Mandeep Sandhur, Dr. Stacey Irvine, DC, Dr. Renita Alawalia, and Mitchell Abrahams. And thank you all for listening to The Tonic. You can listen or download this episode as a podcast with full show notes, contact information for our guests, and links at thetonic.ca. To find out more about the show, you can always follow us at It's The Tonic on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. For great articles by amazing health and wellness writers, be sure to pick up your copy of The Tonic magazine. The November-December issue is available free on racks at over 100 locations across the GTA and delivered with the Globe and Mail to home subscribers in Toronto, west of Victoria Park. Or you can visit our new website, thetonic.ca. 
If you're interested in providing feedback or suggesting topics for the show, you can email me at jamie at the tonic.ca. On our next show, we'll discuss the health and wellness issues that are important to you. Until then, this is Jamie Busson wishing you a healthy and happy week. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.